Hello, and welcome back to the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 19, Poets and Wise Rulers. As we saw last episode, Terpander and Arion were originally from Lesbos. They traveled to the mainland, to Sparta and Corinth, respectively, where they helped in spreading musical innovations to those Dorian states. Lesbos was not only the cradle of musical innovation, but also a hotbed for literary creation. And so to Lesbos, we must turn next. During the Archaic period, Mytilene was the dominant polis of Lesbos, and the strongest of all polis in the northern Aegean, having a strong navy and lucrative colonies that secured trade routes into the Hellespont. In similar fashion to the Bacchiaidae of Corinth, a group of noble families ruled Mytilene for about a century. They called themselves the Pentiliidae, deriving their name and claim to rule from Pentilus, the grandson of Agamemnon and son of Orestes, and the mythical founder of Mytilene. But in the late 7th century BC, the Pentiliidae were ousted and rival factions contended with each other for supreme power, resulting in three tyrants from three different families coming and going in succession. In this political backdrop, the city produced two prominent poets, Sappho and Alcius. Both were from leading noble families. Their friendship was said to have been very close. It is quite possible that they were even lovers. Sappho lived sometime between 630 and 570 BC and is the most celebrated poet of the Lyric Age. She is also the only known woman poet from the Archaic period and may even be the first female poet in the entire world. In fact, she was one of only a few in all of ancient Greek literature, as women were not encouraged to write. Unfortunately, very little of Sappho's poetry has survived. Nine papyrus rolls of her poetry were collected in Hellenistic Alexandria of which only one complete poem survives, along with several substantial portions of poems and a number of very short fragments. All in all, Sappho probably wrote around 10,000 lines of poetry, and only about 650 survive. This is probably due to the fact that Sappho wrote in the Aeolic Greek dialect, which was difficult to translate properly for Latin writers, who were well-versed in Attic and Homeric Greek. Most of what we have are solo songs, highly personal in tone, whose main theme is erotic love. Her account of emotion, especially of love and desire, is so powerful that even in the fragmentary condition in which her poetry survives, it has enormous power. In one of her more famous verses, she says, Some say a host of horsemen is the most beautiful thing on the black earth. Some say a host of foot soldiers some a fleet of ships, but I say it is whatever one loves. She also wrote, For she who by far surpassed all humankind in beauty, Helen, deserted her husband, noblest of men, to sail away to Troy. Neither of child nor of beloved parents did she take thought of at all, being led astray because of love. Sappho also wrote wedding songs called Epithalmia, performed by choruses of young girls. Very little is known about her personal life. She was born into a well-to-do family and is said to have had three brothers, one of which was Caruxus, who fell in love with the slave Rodopus at Nocritus, if you recall from a previous episode. She married a rich merchant from Naxos. They had a daughter, whom she praised in a poem, saying, 
I have a beautiful daughter who resembles a golden flower. My beloved Clace. I wouldn't take all of Croesus's Lydia in exchange for her. In a similar vein, she also described another beautiful young girl, saying, I would rather see her lovely step and the glancing brightness of her face than Lydian chariots and foot soldiers arrayed in armor. During the period 603 to 595 BC, political unrest forced Sappho and her family to leave Lesbos and take refuge in Sicily, where she stayed in Syracuse. Upon returning home, sometime between 590 and 580 BC, she founded a school of music and poetry for upper-class women. There, she taught music, poetry, dance, and manners to those before marriage. Her influence over her students was such that they loved her with true devotion. This gave rise to the accusation that Sappho indulged in homosexual love with her students, as homoeroticism between pupil and student was very popular in ancient Greece. More on that in future episodes. Certain writers, however, claim that Sappho's relationship with her female students was purely pedagogical and educational. Be that as it may, these rumors were the foundation of the sneers found in the works of the comedy writers of the classical period, especially in Athens. And since most of her surviving lines deal with eroticism towards women, and since people from Lesbos were called lesbians, ultimately, 19th century scholars began to describe this type of homosexual love as lesbian love, and the euphemism stuck. A famous anecdote claims that when Solon of Athens heard his nephew sing a song of Sappho's while drinking wine, he liked the song so much that he asked the boy to teach it to him. When someone asked him why, he said, so that I may learn it, then die. Whether the story is true or not is not as important as what it says about Sappho's poetry. Solon was considered one of the wisest men who ever lived and was counted among the seven sages of Greece. He was known for teaching the precept, moderation in everything, and so for him to react so emotionally in this anecdote to Sappho's song is significant in that even one so wise and moderate could be so deeply moved that he would desire nothing more after learning her song. It's clear that she was a poet of immense talent. Her poetry was greatly admired throughout antiquity, that she was honored in statuary, coins were minted in her image, and she was praised by figures such as Plato who hailed her as the Tenth Muse and Sister to the Graces. Her work was sung, taught, and quoted in the very phrases she coined, Love, that loosener of limbs, to more golden than gold, entered the Greek language and were used so much that they eventually became clichés. She was a much sought-after performer, and her compositions continued to be sung and admired long after her death. Alcaeus is less well-known than Sappho, but quite possibly just as extraordinary. As mentioned before, all of the noble families of Lesbos, during the lifetimes of Sappho and Alcaeus, were embroiled in vicious power struggles. It would have been unthinkable for Sappho, a woman, to write of this stasis in her polis. Alcaeus, however, puts us in the center of the complicated intrigues, the political deals and betrayals, and the partisan hatreds and violence which he relates in great detail. Sometime between 612 and 609 BC, the tyrant Melanchrist was overthrown by a faction that included the brothers of Alcaeus and Pittacus, among others. 
Alkius at the time was too young to be actively involved. Next up as tyrant was Merciless. It is not known when he came to power, or how, but some verses by Alkius indicate that the poet, his brothers and Pittacus, made plans to overthrow him, and that Pittacus subsequently betrayed them. Alkius and his brothers fled into exile to Pyrrha on Lesbos. It was because of this incident that Alkius's poetic venom was directed primarily at Pittacus, his new bitter enemy, who had been a former ally. Predictably, Alkius levels at Pittacus, the worst insults an aristocrat could muster, calling him Cacopatrides, literally meaning son of a Cacos, or low-born, as Pittacus was the son of a noblewoman and a middle-class Thracian. Like Sappho, the Hellenistic scholars at Alexandria gathered his works and compiled them into ten books, of which only about 200 excerpts remain. Alcius is purported also to have wrote erotic poetry, like Sappho, but none of that has survived. The surviving fragments of his political poems demonstrate a genius for satire that equals Archilochus. He is also the author of the first political verses that use the metaphor, the ship of state, which appears in at least three of his poems. When he talks about how the ship is being beset by a storm, the sailors are terrified and worried they won't find safety. And he says, Let every man prove himself reliable, and let us not put to shame by cowardice our noble fathers lying under the earth. Again, we see the theme of anxiety over political upheaval taking place, but it's also combined with that age-old sense of needing to give honor to your ancestors. Alcius also wrote hymns to the gods and poetry to be sung at drinking parties, in which he stresses that love, wine, and the pleasures of the drinking party offered him and his companions welcome peacefulness from factional strife. Specifically, he wrote a drinking song in celebration of the news of the tyrant Merciless's death. The echoes of hatred and jubilation for tyrants still rings to us in this fragment of Alcius when he says, Let us drink and reel, for Myrtilus is dead. In any event, the tyrant's death allowed for him to return safely from exile. Sometime before 600 BC, possibly trying to take advantage of their factional strife, Athens challenged Mytilene for control of Sigeon in the Troad, a colony of Mytilene, which commanded an important position at the Hellespont and produced much grain. It was Pittacus who commanded the Mytilenian army in a series of battles against the Athenians and their commander Fearnon, a celebrated Olympic victor. During this war, Alcius was old enough by then to participate in the fighting, and according to Herodotus, like Archilochus, the poet threw away his shield to make good his escape from the victorious Athenians. He then endured the shame of the Athenians, hanging his shield up as a trophy in their temple to Athena. This event was supposedly relayed in a letter sent to his friend, Melanippus, which we no longer have. In fact, most of the poems from this war are lost, except for a few lines but it is thought that they constituted a major source of information for later writers to use. In any event, according to Diogenes Laertes, Pittacus challenged Fearnon to a single combat duel, with the understanding that the result would decide the war, and thereby avoid much bloodshed. Fearnon accepted, but Pittacus won by outwitting his opponent, by using a net, ultimately killing Fearnon with a broad sword. The Athenians, though, 
appealed to the Corinthian tyrant Periander to arbitrate between the two sides as to who should rightfully control Sigeon. Periander found in favor of Athens, accepting their argument that whereas they had taken part in the Trojan Wars and helped to destroy nearby Ilion, the Mytilenians were Aeolians, and so had only arrived in the region at a later date, and therefore did not have the prior claim to the land. Remember how I mentioned many episodes ago that the ancient Greeks looked to Homer to settle territory claims? Well, here's an example. Regardless of their loss at Sigeon, in consequence of his victory, the Mytilenians held Pittacus in the greatest honor. Factional strife once again took root. It was during this time that Sappho was forced to leave Lesbos for Syracuse. And Alcmian and his family were exiled once again, this time off the island entirely, like Sappho. It is thought that Alcius traveled widely during his years in exile, including at least one visit to Egypt. His older brother, Antimenidus, appears to have served as a mercenary in the army of the Neo-Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar II, and probably took part in the conquest of Ascalon. Alcius wrote verses in celebration of Antimenidus's return, including mention of his valor in slaying the larger opponent, and he proudly describes the military hardware that adorned their family home. All of this factional strife at Mytilene eventually resulted in the Mytilenians entrusting Pittacus with absolute power over the winter of 589-588 BC in order to heal the sores of the city. Pittacus was called Tyrannos by Alcmion, but Aristotle later, noting the uncharacteristic features of his reign, implicitly chose to classify him not as a tyrant, but as an asymnetes which can loosely be translated as supervisor, and was the word Dionysius of Halicarnassus later used to translate the Latin dictator. Thus, Aristotle was implying that Pittacus was essentially chosen to take sole command during a period of crisis to end factional strife once and for all. He did not usurp power. During his reign, the city and constitution were brought into good order. Seeking to calm all political passions, he showed sympathy to all political factions by proclaiming an amnesty, and those who were exiled, including Alcmion and Sappho, eventually made their way back to Mytilene. Although he was a moderate reformer, Pittacus was again violently attacked poetically by his fellow citizen and former ally, Alcius, whose family had helped overthrow tyranny and wished to perpetuate the old aristocratic rule, but were now subject to the sole rule of Pittacus. Regardless of the attacks Alcius leveled at him, Pittacus is known as one of the famous seven sages of antiquity for his wisdom and spirit of justice. Diogenes Laertes quotes a number of moral and political maxims attributed to him, as well as an undoubtedly spurious letter he is reported to have written to Croesus, king of Lydia, who had allegedly sent him a lavish gift of money, telling Croesus that he always had twice as much as he needed. He also wrote 600 lines of poetry, as well as a prose text containing laws for the citizens. One of his sayings was that painted wood, meaning the law, was the best protector of the city. His best-remembered law doubled the penalty for all offenses committed when drunk. It was directed predominantly against the nobility, who were more often than not guilty of drunken and violent behavior the most. As such, it was greatly appreciated by the common people. Some of his maxims are, Beware of the unethical. 
power reveals the man. Do not beautify your appearance, but in your works be good. Do not become rich unjustly. Idleness is distressing. Know when to act. And call no man fortunate until he dies. His greatest motto, though, was, Whatever you do, do it well. Some authors mention that he had a son called Tereus. The legend says that his son was killed, and when the murder was brought before Pittacus, he dismissed the man and said, Pardon is better than punishment. We are unsure how long his power was intended to last, but after ten years, feeling as if he had achieved its means, he laid down his position peacefully and lived the remaining ten years of his life as an ordinary citizen before he died, having lived eighty years from 648 to 568 BC. The following epigram was reported to have been carved on his grave. With the appropriate tears, sacred Lesbos mourns for Pittacus, whom it produced, and now is dead. Of the seven Sophoi, or wise men, of antiquity, we have already discussed Periander of Corinth in a previous episode, and now Pittacus of Mytilene. The other five are Thales of Miletus, Solon of Athens, Chilon of Sparta, Bias of Priene, and Cleobulus of Rhodes. We will discuss Thales, Chilon, and Solon in our future episodes on pre-Socratic philosophy, Athens, and Sparta respectively. These men all lived around the same time, at the end of the 7th and beginning of the 6th centuries BC. And one of the things you can notice from this list is the wide geographical distribution of these names. But their stories do share common traits. With the exception of Thales, we should not think of these men as philosophers. Instead, they were sort of Pan-Hellenic cultural heroes. They embodied a combination of practical experience, theoretical wisdom, wit, and the ability to impress a large group of people. They engaged in poetry and were revered for their wisdom as statesmen and lawgivers. The oldest explicit mention on record of a standard list of seven sages is in Plato. Diogenes Laertes later confirms that there were indeed seven such individuals who were held in high esteem for their wisdom well before Plato's time. A compilation of 147 maxims, inscribed at Delphi on the Temple of Apollo, was preserved by the 5th century AD scholar Strabaeus, which he called Sayings of the Seven Sages. But the actual authorship of the inscriptions are uncertain. Most likely, they were popular proverbs, which later were attributed to particular sages. According to a number of moralistic stories, there was a golden tripod, or in some versions of the story, a bowl or a cup, which was to be given to the wisest. Allegedly, it passed in turn from one of the seven sages to another, beginning with Thales, until one of them, either Thales or Solon, depending on the story, finally dedicated it to Apollo, who was held to be the wisest of them all. Bias was born in Priene, a town north of Miletus in Ionia. He was renowned for his wisdom, his flawless judgment, and his skill as an advocate. He only defended in court those who had been unjustly treated, and without a fee. When he was obliged to sentence someone to death, he would weep. Afterwards, judges in ancient Greece strived to give what they called a Priennian decision. Even the philosopher Heraclitus, who poured scorn on figures such as Hesiod and Pythagoras, 
referred to Bias as a man of more consideration than any. One of the examples of his great goodness is the legend that says that Bias paid a ransom for some woman who had been taken as prisoner. After educating them as if they were his own daughters, he sent them back to Masana, their homeland, and to their fathers. It is said that Bias wrote a poem of 2,000 lines on the way to make Ionia prosperous, but that work has not survived. Many maxims were attributed to him by later authors, such as, Take by persuasion, not force. To desire the impossible is a sickness of the mind. And provide yourself with wisdom from youth to old age, because it is a more lasting possession than anything else. It is said that when Aliates, king of Lydia, laid siege to Priene, Bias let loose two well-fed mules into Aliates' camp. The latter, seeing the mules, was astonished at their excellent condition and concluded that for livestock to be fed so well, the inhabitants must be living under very good conditions. To verify this, he sent a messenger into the city. Then Bias ordered piles of sand to be created, and wheat to be poured on top of them, which he then showed to the emissary. When Aliates learned about this, he sought peace with Priene. Bias is said to have died at a very old age, as he was pleading for his client in court. After he had finished speaking, he rested his head on his grandson. After the advocate on the opposite side had spoken, the judges decided in favor of Bias's client, by which time he had died already. He was honored by a splendid funeral, and the sanctuary was dedicated to him. On his tomb was inscribed, Here Bias of Priene lies, whose name brought to his home and all Ionia fame. Cleobulus was a native of Lindos, on the island of Rhodes. Plutarch spoke of him as the tyrant of Lindos. His father boasted that his family descended from Heracles. He was distinguished for his physical strength and handsome appearance. He had traveled widely and was said to have studied philosophy in Egypt. He wrote poetry, riddles, and epigrams. He had a daughter, Cleobuline, who also was a writer of riddles and hexameter poems. Of all the riddles for which Cleobulus was famed, only a few have survived, including this one. The father is one, and his children twelve. Each of the children has twice thirty daughters, who have a different appearance. Some are white, others black. Some are immortal, while others die. If you want to solve the riddle on your own, I recommend that you pause this, and rewind if you need to. But for those who aren't able to figure it out, the answer is time. Anyways, many maxims have been attributed to him as well such as hold your tongue, do nothing by force, show not pride when wealthy, nor undo servility when poor, and measure in all things. He was said to have lived to an advanced age, and more than likely died of natural causes. Another interesting literary figure, with a connection to both Sappho and the Seven Sophoi, is the semi-mythical storyteller Aesop. If he actually was a person, he probably lived sometime around 620 to 564 BC. He is credited with a collection of 725 fables, known as Aesop's Fables. No writings by Aesop, if he existed or even wrote anything, have survived. There probably existed in the 5th century BC a written book containing various fables, 
As authors of the classical period make mention of having read it, but we cannot be certain who the original author or authors were. Like with the case of Homer, ancient authors probably attached it to some legendary figure named Aesop to give it some sort of authority. The body of work identified today as Aesop's fables was transmitted by a series of authors writing in Greek and ultimately in Latin, with the addition of material from other cultures later. Also, what we have today in its final form bears little relation to those that Aesop supposedly originally told. The fables likely were originally told from person to person as much more for entertainment purposes, but largely as a means for relaying or teaching a moral or lesson. These stories are essentially allegorical myths, often portraying animals and inanimate objects mimicking human speech and behavior. In effect, the stories are designed to mimic human life. Most of the fables are meant to highlight bad or poor human decisions and behaviors in order to allow the animals to appear in multiple tales and roles. Aesop did not restrict the animals to behaving in a manner generally associated with that particular animal, such as the cunning fox or the slow turtle. These looser characterizations allow for the animals to appear in other settings acting in different manners. Often the focus of Greek learning Especially regarding instruction for children in reading and writing, Aesop's fables served a multitude of additional purposes. Politically, the fables emerged in a time period of Greek history, when authoritarian rule often made free and open speech dangerous for the speaker. The fables served as a means by which criticisms against the government could be expressed without fear of punishment. In effect, the story served as a code by which the weak and powerless could speak out against the strong and powerful. Additionally, the stories served to remind the weak that being clever could provide a means by which they could succeed against the powerful. The subversive nature of the tales allowed the lower classes in Greek society a means of escape from a society which was often oriented around the idea that might makes right. The fables were also considered as a valuable tool in speeches, especially as a means to persuade others about a specific point. Aristotle, in his rhetoric, argued that in the absence of any concrete evidence for proving one's point, that a fable could just as well support one's argument. Scattered details of Aesop's life can be found in ancient sources, including Aristotle, Herodotus, and Plutarch. An ancient literary work called the Aesop Romance tells an episodic, albeit probably highly fictional version, of his life. Regardless whether he was an actual person or not, the legend behind Aesop is quite an interesting tale itself. Aristotle indicates that Aesop was born in Thrace, at a site on the Black Sea coast, which would later become the city Mesembria. From Aristotle and Herodotus, we learn that Aesop was an extremely ugly slave in Samos, and that his master was a man named Xanthus. If you remember, he also owned Rhodopis, the famous courtesan of Nocritus, whom Sappho denounced vehemently in one of her poems. It is not mentioned how he became a slave. Anyway, after showing kindness to a priestess of Isis, he is granted by the goddess the gift of clever storytelling. We can already see an anachronism here, as the cult of Isis wouldn't be spread into Greece until the Hellenistic period. Anyway, Aesop uses his newfound gift of the gab to interpret a prophecy for the people of Samos, after which he is given his freedom. He even argued as an advocate for a wealthy Samian and acted as an emissary between the Samians and King Croesus of Lydia. 
While at Sardis, he comes across Solon. According to Plutarch, Aesop was sent to Delphi on a diplomatic mission from Croesus. So on his way, he accompanied Solon back to Athens. At one point, Aesop and Solon met Periander of Corinth, where Plutarch has him dining with the other five members of the seven sages of Greece. After this, he finally made it to Delphi, but he managed to anger the Delphians by telling insulting fables, was sentenced to death on a trumped-up charge of temple theft, and was forced to jump from a cliff off Mount Parnassus to his death. While falling, he cursed the people of Delphi, resulting in the Delphians suffering pestilence and famine. While the chronology does match up, and it makes an interesting story, most if not all of these events are more than likely literary fiction. Stesichorus was the first great lyric poet of the West. He was born in Metaros, in Calabria, in southern Italy, around 630 BC, moved to Himera in Sicily at some point in his life, and ultimately died in Catania in Sicily in 555 BC. He was called Stesichorus because he was the first to establish Stesi, or a chorus of singers to the Cathara. His name was originally Tisius. He is best known for telling epic stories and lyric meters, though. He was ranked among the nine lyric poets, esteemed by the scholars of Hellenistic Alexandria, yet his work attracted relatively little interest among ancient commentators, so that remarkably few fragments of his poetry now survive. Recent discoveries, recorded on Egyptian papyrus, have led to some improvements in our understanding of his work, confirming his role as a link between Homer and Hesiod's epic narrative and the lyric narrative of poets like Pindar. In fact, most scholars believe Stesichorus exercised an important influence on the representation of myth in 6th century BC art and on the development of Athenian drama. Stesichorus's works were collected in 26 books, each of which was probably a long narrative poem. The titles of more than half of them are recorded by ancient sources. Some of the mythical themes he covered were the Sack of Troy and the Wooden Horse, which probably influenced Virgil later the return of the heroes to Greece, and the labors of Heracles, which would be developed further in later drama. His lyrical treatment of epic themes, like those, was well suited to a Western Greek audience, owing to the popularity of hero cults in southern Italy and Magna Graecia. It was also a sympathetic environment for his most famous poem, The Palinode, composed in praise of Helen of Troy, an important cult figure in the Doric diaspora. Helen's bad character was a common theme among poets such as Sappho and Alcaeus. According to various ancient accounts, Stesichorus viewed her in the same light, blaming her just as much as Paris for the Trojan War. But then he was supposedly blinded for writing verses insulting her. Pausanias says that after Stesichorus composed the Palinode, he was restored to full sight by Helen in a dream. In his poem, he absolved her of all blame for the Trojan War stating that the combatants fought over a phantom Helen, while the real Helen either stayed home or went to Egypt, which obviously differs from Homer's account. Traditional accounts also indicate that he was politically active in Magna Graecia. Aristotle in his rhetoric mentions two public speeches by Stesichorus, one to the people of Himera, warning them against the ambitions of Phalaris, the tyrant of Acragas, and another to the people of Locri warning them against presumption, 
possibly referring to their war against Regium. A later tradition recorded that the poet once stood between two armies, which two weren't stated, and reconciled them with a song. But there's a similar story about Terpander, so the story is probably fanciful legend. As we have seen, there had grown in the Dark Ages a class of hereditary landowners called the Agathoi, who also controlled the dispensation of justice. For instance, Hesiod complains about the bribe-swallowing judges, who deprived him of his inheritance. But these Agathoi not only came to be challenged by tyrants, but also lawgivers, and in some cases even both. Among the more famous lawgivers are Lycurgus of Sparta, Zeleucus of Locri, Carondas of Catania, and Draco and Solon of Athens. They were responsible for codifying, or in some cases, establishing the nomoi, which were the laws sanctioned by precedent, and the way that a community defined itself. One of the best manifestations of this is the ideal of eunomia, which is the condition of having good laws well obeyed. But what is it that gave rise to the codification of laws? Well, part of it is the polis ideology, where you have this group of ideological equal citizens who all wanted to have equal rights under and claim to the law. We have seen the economic and social stress, with the introduction of new standards of wealth. But another factor was almost certainly colonization. Some of these colonies had settlers from different mother cities, so they had to find someone to harmonize their customs. So in steps the lawgiver. Ideologically and culturally, he is very important. There's a group of them. Some historical, some legendary, but their stories fit into an almost predictable pattern. Common to them all is some kind of crisis in the home state, whether it's economic or political faction. The old customs simply weren't working well enough, and so the community chose a virtuous man, uniquely able to come up with a good code. Most are said to have traveled widely, to see the towns and learn the minds of different men, and to see how other people organized. The home community then welcomed the lawgiver back, set aside their differences, and allowed him to establish a code that anybody can appeal to. The story then almost always includes either the death or the departure of the lawgiver, because as long as he was around, he had the ability to change his own code. This is the ideology that the law is superior to the individual. Aristotle says that the polis is much more important than any individual. So in the stories of these lawgivers, we see this ideology being worked out. But we also see the replacement of a kind of clan-based justice system dispensed at the whim of the nobility, to a kind of justice that can apply to all the members in a community. We have surviving in southern Crete, one of the earliest law codes, at a town called Gorton, or modern Gortis. It goes on quite some length, and is written in the booster feed-in style that we mentioned a few episodes back, where one line is read left to right, and the next is read right to left, and so forth. The Gorton Code is written in the Dorian dialect, and represents the only substantial corpus of Greek law from antiquity found outside Athens. The whole corpus of Cretan law may be divided into three broad categories. The earliest being around 600 to 525 BC, was inscribed on the steps and walls of the Temple of Apollo. The next was written on the walls in the Agora, between 525 and 400 BC. And the third also was written in the Agora, but since they contain Ionian characters, they have been dated to the 4th century BC. 
Though all the texts are fragmentary and show evidence of a continuous amendment of the law, it has been possible to trace the development of the law from archaic inscriptions onwards. These early legal codes were simply written-down versions of what had been custom. In the Gorton Code, for example, we have elaborate detail on such matters as disputed ownership of slaves, the rights of a wife when divorced or a widow, the custody of children born after divorce, inheritance, sale and mortgaging of property, ransom, children of mixed marriages, whether that be slave, free, and foreign, and adoption. The code makes legal distinctions between different social classes. As free, slave, and foreigner social statuses are recognized within the document, there are also carefully collaborated punishments listed for crimes, such as assault, rape, and adultery. For example, if you assault a free person, man or a woman, the punishment is much more severe than if you assault a slave. Vice versa, if a slave assaulted a free person, the punishment is more serious than if they had assaulted another slave. We shouldn't think of eunomia being these idealistic models of laws, but as an idea of order in the community, as opposed to the disorder of individual clan-based justice. When the laws are recorded, everyone can see them and know what their punishment will be if they transgress them. If they can't read, at least they have the ability for someone to read it off for them. This was huge and was part of the enormous social changes that were taking place in archaic Greece. These changes, as we have seen, were met with staunch resistance by the nobles. Interesting evidence for the social anxiety taking place can be seen in the roughly 1,400 lines of poetry that have been attributed to Theognis of Megara, who flourished around 550 BC. Almost nothing is known about Theognis the man, as little is recorded by ancient sources and modern scholars question the authorship of most of the poems preserved under his name. There is no overall structure, being a continuous series of elegiac couplets featuring frequent, sudden changes in subject and theme, in which different people are addressed, and even the speaker seems to change persona, voicing contradictory statements, and on a couple of occasions, even changing sex. Some are even deeply anachronistic talking about events that Theognis couldn't have lived through. Thus, they suspect that these poems were probably a later compilation written by many different authors, dating from the late 7th to the early 5th century BC. This anthology, called the Theognidia, is important because it is our best source for aristocratic ideas about many various different subject matters during the Age of Tyranny. If Theognis was real, we can surmise that he was a nobleman who was forced out of Megara during political strife. Most likely the tyrant Theogonus. Yes, the two names are pronounced the same, but spelled differently, and I regrettably admit that I thought the tyrant was also the poet at first. Then I realized it didn't make any sense for the tyrant to have written poetry railing against himself. In any event, this Theognis character used his writings to complain about the political atmosphere of his old polis, and wax nostalgically for a return back to its former hereditary-based oligarchic government. He even writes that he expects his poems to be circulated and read in the future. In doing so, he was the first Greek poet known to express concern over the eventual fate and survival of his own work. Ironically, it was probably his reputation as a moralist, significant enough to deserve comment by Aristotle and Plato, that guaranteed the survival of at least some of his work. 
although scholars believe that about half of it is missing. The collection reads like a moral handbook for nobles, praising the values of the well-born Agathoi and vilifying the base-born Kakoi, who are represented as incapable of any sort of excellence. This intensified contempt was the reaction of a frustrated nobility who realized that they were losing their status and privilege while a significant number of non-elites were making economic and political gains. Conveyed again and again in verses is a sense of helplessness mingled with bitter resentment at the intolerable reversal of station. Addressed to his younger lover, Theognis writes, Kyrnus, those who were Agathoi, once are now Kakoi, and those who were Kakoi, before are now Agathoi. Who could bear seeing this? The Agathoi dishonored, and the Kakoi getting honor. In another passage, he says, among rams and asses and horses, Kernis, we look for those of noble breeding, and a man wants them to mate from a worthy stock. Yet a noble man does not mind marrying a base woman of base birth, if she brings him money in abundance, nor does a woman shrink from becoming the wife of a base man with wealth. She prefers a rich husband to a worthy one. Money is what they honor. There again is that theme of anxiety and anger. It is a reversal in viewpoint from Archilochus, but just as vivid. Although the nobles would continue to proclaim their innate superiority, the movement towards political leveling that had begun in the 7th century BC was essentially completed by the early decades of the 5th century BC. Phocylides of Miletus, a contemporary of Theognis of Megara, is only known for a few fragments of his maxims that have survived in which he expresses his contempt for the pomp and vanities of the nobility, and sets forth in a simple language his ideas of honor, justice, and wisdom. Quite possibly his most famous fragment, as quoted by Aristotle, Many things are best in the middle. I want to be middle in the polis. While his maxims were eloquent representations of the non-elites in Greece, other poets painted a far more colorful representation of the non-elite perspective. Following in the iambic footsteps of Archilochus and Simonides was Hipponax of Ephesus. In composing verses depicting the vulgar side in Ionian society, he adopted the persona of an urban hustler, always broke and engaging in drunken brawls and escapades. Hipponax wrote in a vernacular full of street slang and obscenity, savagely lampooning his enemies and making fun of himself and his poverty. Little of his work survives, despite its interest to Alexandrian scholars, who collected it in three books, most likely because later Christian scholars didn't approve and thus didn't copy. The Hellenistic scholars, though, were particularly interested in his use of language, as he employed a form of Ionic Greek that acted as if Homer never existed, and instead used an unusually high number of Anatolian, particularly Lydian-based, words. Aristotle credited him with inventing literary parody, as well as with influencing comedians, such as Aristophanes. His witty, abusive style appears, for example, in this quote cited by Herodian, What naval snipper wiped and washed you as you squirmed about, you crack-brained creature? It should be noted that naval snipper signifies a midwife. It is recorded that he was expelled from Ephesus by the tyrants Athenagoras and Comas. Nothing is known about them, unfortunately. Anyway, then he settled in Clazomenae, where he wrote verses, 
satirizing the brothers Bupalus and Athenus of Chios. They were sculptors of marble, and are even believed to have been the sculptors for at least one frieze on the Siphnian treasury at Delphi, as the inscription of Bupalus has been found there. In any event, when Hipponax had sought to marry Bupalus's daughter, he was rejected because apparently he was really ugly, and Bupalus portrayed him as such in sculpture in order to provoke laughter. Hipponax retaliated in verse, so savagely that Bupalus and Athenus hanged themselves. Hipponax, in that case, closely resembles Archilochus, who, if you recall, reportedly drove Lycambes and his daughters to hang themselves after he too was rejected in marriage. Such a coincidence by two iambic poets obviously invites skepticism. Before I continue, I will give you a warning that you're about to hear some vulgar language. So if you don't want to hear it, you should probably skip ahead 15 to 30 seconds. With that being said, in one fragment, Hipponax decries Bupalus, the motherfucker with Arete, Metrocoitus in Greek. Arete evidently is the mother of Bupalus, and is also presented as performing fellatio in Hipponax, her own son, in another fragment. And elsewhere, Hipponax complains, Why did you go to bed with that rogue Bupalus? And again, apparently referring to Arete, whose name ironically is Greek for virtue. The poet describes himself as a man of action, but unlike Archilochus, who served as a warrior on Thassos, his battlefields are close to home. He says, Take my cloak, I'll hit Bupalus in the eye, for I have two right hands and I don't miss with my punches. Eating, defecating, and fornicating are frequent themes found in his poetry, and often they are employed together as in a fragment that we have that narrates a sexual encounter between Hipponax and a Lydian-speaking woman, who performs some esoteric and obscene religious rites on him, including beating his genitals with a fig branch and inserting something up his anus, provoking defecation, and finally an attack by dung beetles. Carrying on the tradition of Simonides, Hipponax too shows his misogynistic side when he says, There are two days when a woman is a pleasure, the day one marries her, and the day one carries out her dead body. Lewd representations of the non-elite, though, were not the norm in late 6th century BC poetry. In returning back to the elitist perspective, we come across another Ionian poet by the name of Anacreon of Teos, a polis which sat opposite of Samos on the Anatolian coastline. He lived from around 570 to 485 BC. A celebrated poet in his youth, he was renowned as a witty, boisterous womanizer, a natural consequence of growing up in Ionia during the period of prosperity. Anacreon fled into exile with most of his fellow townsmen to Abdera in Thrace, when Cyrus the Great besieged the Greek cities of Asia Minor. Anacreon seems to have taken part in the fighting, in which by his own admission, he did not distinguish himself well. Later, he was invited to Samos by the tyrant Polycrates to his court along with other poets, but he quickly became Polycrates' favorite and even wrote complimentary odes about him. According to Herodotus, he was even present in the royal chamber when an audience was given to a Persian herald. But after Polycrates was murdered, and the Asiatic Greeks were fully subjugated by the Persians, he left Samos and joined the court of the Athenian tyrant Hipparchus. There will be more on Polycrates, Hipparchus, and the Persians in future episodes. In any event, In Athens, he became acquainted with the poet Simonides, 
and other members of the brilliant literary circle that had gathered around Hipparchus. When Hipparchus too was murdered, the circle was broken up, and he and Simonides traveled to the court of Ephicrates, a Thessalian monarch of the house of the Aluadi. Following the Persian Wars, he returned home to Teos, where he either died in old age, or according to a colorful story by the Roman author Pliny the Elder, he choked on a grape. For a long time, Anacreon was popular in Athens, where a statue was said to be seen on the Athenian Acropolis. On several coins from Teos, he is represented holding a lyre in his hand, sometimes sitting, sometimes standing. He was considered to the Hellenistic Alexandrians to be one of the canonical nine. His poetry was divided into five books, three of which contain purely lyric poems, another elegies, while the last contain iambic poetry. Of his extensive body of work, only fragments survive. His subjects are inspired by his life as an aristocratic court poet. He particularly celebrated the pleasures of feasting, wine, love, and carefree life. For Anacreon, these are the proper topics for symposia, not the worn-out themes of war and bloodshed. He writes, I don't like the man who, while drinking wine beside the full mixing bowl, talks about quarrels and warfare with its tears but rather one who mingles the muses and Aphrodite's splendid gifts together, and so keeps the charms of festivity in mind. Similar in style and tone to Anacreon was his contemporary Ibicus from Eregium, in southern Italy, who also spent years at Polycrates' court. Unlike Anacreon, though, very few biographical facts are actually known. The proverb, more silly than Ibicus, was apparently based on an anecdote about Ibicus stupidly or nobly turning down an opportunity to become tyrant of Regium, in order to pursue a poetic career instead. The veracity of this is unsure, but Plato did imply that Ibicus was in fact wise enough to avoid the lure of supreme power. Not much is known from his time in the West, except that he fell from his chariot while traveling between Catania and Himera, and injured his hand badly enough, forcing him to give up playing the lyre for some considerable time. Evidence in his surviving poetry seems to indicate that Ibicus might have spent time at Sicyon and Sparta before journeying to Samos. He probably left Samos at the same time as Anacreon and was said to have died back home in Regium. Ibicus too was considered by Hellenistic Alexandrians to be part of the canonical nine lyric poets. Some of Ibicus's poems are long choral narratives and lyric meters on traditional epic and mythological themes in the manner of Stesichorus. His work survives today only as quotations by ancient scholars, or recorded on fragments of papyrus recovered from Egypt. Most of his extant work, however, is homoerotic poetry, full of sensuous imagery, and is considered some of the finest examples of Greek poetry. In one poem, Eros, or love, comes from the north wind from Thrace, and with parching madness, dark and fearless, shakes me to the bottom of my heart with his might. In another poem, on falling in love again, he compares himself to an old champion racehorse that unwillingly drags his chariot to the contest. Ibicus's role in the development of Greek lyric poetry was as a mediator between Eastern and Western styles. Sappho and Alcaeus wrote, while Stesichorus was developing the different art of the choral ode in the West, but with Ibicus, the art of the West was brought to Ionia and the fusion of the two styles marked a new stage in Greek poetry. 
The three other lyric poets to round out the canonical nine, Simonides, Bacchylides, and Pindar, whose careers were mainly in the 5th century BC, will be discussed in a future episode. On the next episode, we are going to continue our cultural tour of the Greek Renaissance and turn our attention to a school of thought that was beginning to percolate about our existence and role in this universe, absent from the gods. So join us next time on the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 20, The Intellectual Revolution. If you haven't done so yet, please head on over to iTunes and rate and review the show. It would help the podcast grow immensely. Also, while you're there, subscribe to the show so it comes onto your phone every week. If you don't have iTunes, you can catch the show on SoundCloud, Stitcher, or Google Play. Also, make sure you're checking out the website at thehistoryofancientgreece.com, where I've posted a lot of neat supplementary photos, maps, and charts for each episode. Thanks everyone for your continued support, and I hope you're enjoying the podcast. I would like to give a special thanks to the amazing artist Michael Levy for allowing me to feature his music on this podcast. He transports you to the ancient world, bringing to life the melodies and using the techniques of the past. A new song will be played every episode. This one is titled, Ancient Greek Musical Fragment, from his album, The Ancient Greek Lyre. If you like what you heard and are curious to learn more about ancient Greek music, check out his website at ancientlyre.com. His albums are available in every major digital music store, including iTunes, Amazon, and Spotify.